Awesome. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. If you are new or visiting, I want to say welcome. It is good to have you with us. Grateful that you would join us this morning as we worship and study God's Word together. Uh, for the past few weeks, we have been working our way through the first three chapters uh, in the book of Revelation, and uh, the bulk of which consists of seven short letters that are written by Jesus to seven local churches in the Roman province of Asia, which, which is an area today that's kind of now western Turkey, right along the Mediterranean. And um, at the time that these letters were written at the end of the first century, all of these churches were, were facing some really challenging situations, some pretty, some pretty difficult things were going on. And to various degrees, each of them were being threatened by false teaching and temptation towards idolatry and immorality and, and, uh, and things like spiritual complacency and apathy, and all of them were facing intensifying persecution. And so it's in the midst of these circumstances that the, that the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus appears to the Apostle John while he's, while he's on the island of Patmos, uh, stranded there for following Jesus and teaching about him. And, and Jesus comes with some crucial messages, some crucial messages for his churches. There were messages that were meant to comfort and to strengthen these young churches, but they were to, to, to empower them towards faithful obedience and towards steadfast faithfulness towards him till the end. But, but they were also messages that were meant to correct them. And to rebuke them and, and to call them to repentance from idolatry and immorality and from complacency. You see, these, these messages that, that Jesus has for, his, that these, for these seven churches, they were messages that they desperately needed to hear. But I hope what you've seen over the past few weeks as we've studied these letters is that they are messages that you and I need to hear just as much as they did. You see, because while, while, the, while the situations or the circumstances that, that these letters might have found themselves might have changed, the, the fundamental issues that, that these churches face and that the church today still faces, they have not changed. Nowhere is that more clearly visible than in, the letters, than, than in these letters than in Jesus' words to the church in Thyatira this morning. You see, at the heart of this letter to the church in Thyatira is the issue of tolerance. And tolerance is a, is, is a buzzword. It's been a buzzword in our culture for quite a while now. Uh, but tolerance is not inherently a bad word, right? As Christians, we support legal tolerance, right? We believe in the, the idea of a free society in which people should have the freedom to believe and practice whatever faith they might have, whether we disagree with that or not, right? We don't want people who disagree with us to be discriminated against or to be harassed or to be made as outcasts, right? Likewise, as Christians, we believe in, in a social or relational tolerance. Right? Maybe you have family or friend or a neighbor or a coworker they, that disagrees with you. Maybe they hold to another religion or spirituality or, or another ideology or another practice or whatever it is. Maybe they're, they don't believe in God at all. Maybe they're agnostic. Maybe they have all different kinds of beliefs or practices or whatever else. And as Christians, right, we don't shun people who disagree with us. We don't ostracize them. We, we don't hate them. Instead, the Bible calls us to love those, even those who might disagree with or might oppose us. You see, there is a good kind of tolerance, giving people the benefit of the doubt, allowing, and, allowing for and seeking to understand different perspectives. There is a good kind of tolerance. But I think all of us understand that, that there's another kind of tolerance as well. You see, the kind of tolerance our culture calls us to isn't just, isn't just to acknowledge or, or to respect the beliefs and the behaviors of others. 
but is instead to give an unqualified, unconditional affirmation of every belief and every behavior. To give an unqualified and unquestioned affirmation of every belief and every behavior. You see, the, the primary social ethic, right, is, that, is that, that, that we affirm everyone's self-defined pursuit of freedom and happiness and self-definition and, and self-expression, and we unquestionably affirm those things. And any deviation from this ethic of, of absolute affirmation and tolerance is seen, as, is seen as dangerous even. You see, for all that our culture might speak about tolerance, we live in an increasingly intolerant age. If you don't support and embrace everyone and everything, then, then you're seen as bigoted or narrow-minded or you're seen as discriminatory or prejudiced or, or outdated or primitive. You see, but the bottom line is that as Christians, we cannot give an unqualified and unconditional affirmation of every belief and every behavior. We cannot affirm and support all things because the God that we worship does not affirm and support all things. You see, and in our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus confronting this church in Thyatira because they are tolerating, they are allowing, they are tacitly affirming some of the very beliefs and behaviors that God himself most vehemently opposes. And the reality is, is that you and I, we are tempted to do the very same thing. We are tempted to do the very same thing. We are tempted to care more about what our culture says, about what we should believe and how we should behave than about what God says. We are, we are tempted to care more about our desires for comfort or for pleasure or for social acceptability than we are to care about God's desires for us. We are tempted to look for teachers who will tell us what we want to hear rather than teachers who will tell us what God wants us to hear, which is why we, it is so important that we hear Jesus' words this morning that we hear his corrective words this morning to us. You see, while they may not have been written to us, they absolutely were written for us. And the question is this morning, will we have ears to hear? Will we have ears to hear? Will we listen to what Jesus has to say? And so to that end, let us pray and read our passage as we study Jesus' letter the church in Thyatira. King Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we are so grateful that you would gather us here together to sit under the teaching of your word. God, I, uh, I, God, I, just, I just recognize this morning my own uh, need for you. God, I'm grateful that uh, you, you qualify the unqualifiable. God, that you, that you use uh, even people like me who are uh, God, there's so much wrong in my heart and my life, God, but you are gracious to use even me and you use all of us. And so, God, as we come this morning, uh, God, we just want to recognize that you want to speak to us through your word. God, and that oftentimes the things that you have to say with, to us, God, they confront us and they challenge us and, and they correct us. And sometimes those are hard things to hear. King Jesus, we ask that you would graciously enable us to hear from you this morning. God, to hear your words of love and the invitation of life that you have, that we might surrender our lives unto you. And so, King Jesus, we ask that you'd be gracious to use me and to, and, to, and to enable me to speak what is true with grace and humility this morning, that you'd enable us to hear and respond rightly to your word. Jesus, none of that is possible without you doing that work in us. And so we ask that you, for our good and for your great glory, that you would do it. We pray. Amen. 
Well, this morning we're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. The letter reads this way, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, into eating food sacrificed to idols, and I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling And so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. And I will strike her children dead. Then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose on, uh, on any other burden on you except hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The one who will, uh, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them like pieces of pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I'll also give that one the morning star. For whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Thyatira, it was the least well-known and least impressive and least important of all the seven cities in which these seven letters are written. It was politically and culturally marginalized because of its strategically poor location in the region. And so instead, this city found its identity uh, economically through various uh, influential trade guilds uh, that were especially concentrated in the metal and fabric industries in the region. And as you may have noticed in these first few letters that we read, whenever, wherever trade guilds are around, uh, immorality and idolatry are uh, close behind. And that's because all of these trade guilds, they, they, had, patron, they had patron gods and, and they were worshipped as part of their many feasts. And these feasts were often held in the temples of these various patron gods and they were kind of viewed as religious, uh, religious occasions. And they often, if not usually, ended in, in just rampant debauchery. And because these trade guilds weren't just like a, they weren't just like a labor union, they were, they were, rather they functioned additionally kind of like an extended community family, like a, like a social fraternity as well, like a social welfare program. These, these guilds and their feasts with their idolatry and their sexual revelry, they were, ubi- they were a ubiquitous part of life in the Greco-Roman world. They, it was just the way things were. They were everywhere. It was just a part of life. And so you imagine it would have been incredibly costly both financially and socially for Christians in this day not to participate in these things. And it's into this context that Jesus writes to this church. And he introduces himself as the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
You see, Thyatira was home to a, a, a special temple to, to uh, the sun god Apollo, who was one of the sons of Zeus, who likely served as, as the patron saint of many of the city's trade guilds, right? The, the patron saint of, of that kind of affirmed that was going on and supported these guilds. But Jesus here introduces himself not as a son of God, but as the son of God the son of the, the one true God. He's saying that he is God, that he is the maker of the heavens of the earth. He's the maker of the sun and the moon and the stars and everything that lies between them, that he rules and he reigns over all peoples and all places and all times and all cultures and all circumstances and situations and that he, not Apollo, is the true divine son that is worthy of their worship. And this true divine son is described as one who has eyes like blazing fire, meaning that he sees all and that he knows all. He doesn't just have a perspective. He doesn't just, he doesn't just have an interpretation on what is going on. No, this divine son sees the truth because he knows the truth and he is the truth and he speaks the truth. You see, he sees all and he knows all. And his truth, like the burnished bronze that describes his feet, is glorious and it is immovable, and it is unshakable. And so to a church that is constantly surrounded by what their culture says is good and right and true, Jesus introduces himself as the one who is the only one who ultimately has the right to decide what is good and right and true. He is the one who has the right to decide whether what you and I, whether individually or collectively, whether what we believe or do is right or wrong. He is the one who has the right to decide whether our belief or our behavior is faithful or unfaithful. He is the one who has the right to decide whether our obedience is, whether our lives and our actions are really obedience or disobedience. You see, it doesn't really matter what you and I think or how we feel or what we vote. It doesn't really matter what our friends or our neighbors or our coworkers or our, or our bosses say it doesn't really matter what our society or our culture deems right. It matters what he says. It matters what he says. And he is the one to whom we will all give an account. Do you see Jesus that way? Do you see him that way? You see, he is not just our sacrificial savior. He is the sovereign king and lord of history. His word is final. His truth is the truth. And the question is, will we submit to him as king? Will we align our lives and our behaviors with his word and his ways, or will we choose instead to be our own king? See, it is a question we must all ask, and it is a question which frames the letter to the church in Thyatira. It's the son of God the one whose eyes are like blazing fire, who sees all, who knows all, whose truth is immovable and unshakable. He is the one who addresses this church. And will we submit to him or to the world around us you see, and while there are clearly real problems in this church that Christ is going to hold them to account for, there are a few things that he wants to commend them for. First, we see in verse 19, he says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance that you are now doing more than you did at first. You see, the one who sees all and the one who knows all and the one who sees the truth, he sees their increasing actions of love and of faithful service. 
This was a vibrant church. It was a tight-knit community that, that loved each other well and that served their community well, likely. It was probably the kind of church that you would walk into and the, where you would feel immediately welcomed, where you feel immediately like you were part of that community and like you were invited into it, like, like you could easily be a part of that community, that there was a place for you there. It was a, it was a church that was full of love. You see, while on earth, Jesus he was the same way. He fed the hungry and he served the poor and hurting and he befriended women and children and those who were marginalized and ostracized and he loved and he gave and he served and he cared for people. And Jesus says, I see you doing those same things. I see you loving and caring and serving and I see your faithfulness. I see you growing in these things. That is good. Keep going in that. But, but, and see, Jesus doesn't just commend this young church. He has some sharp words of criticism for them. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, into the eating of the food that is sacrificed by idols. You see, Jesus commends this church for their love and for their service. But the issue here was is that their love was undiscerning. It was undiscerning and it was blindly affirming. See, the big problem in Thyatira is that they tolerated false teaching and immoral behavior, two things that God himself is fiercely intolerant of. And Jesus doesn't pat them on the back. He doesn't just applaud them for being open-minded and welcoming and affirming. He says that your tolerance is not actually love. It is unfaithfulness. It's disobedience. It is rebellion. It is sin. Apparently, there was a woman in this church who claimed to be a prophet but wasn't. She's referred to, Jesus refers to her as Jezebel, which likely is not her real name. Instead, whoever she was, she was acting like a Jezebel. Jezebel was an idolatrous queen in the, in the Old Testament who enticed Israel to worship false gods and to commit sexual immorality, a lot like the prophet Balaam that we talked about a few weeks when we studied the letter in, um, to the church in Pergamum. And like the Old Testament Jezebel, this woman in Thyatira had become very influential in the church. What she had to say and what she had to teach, it was, it was gaining popularity. It was something that people were listening to and wanting to hear more of. And this is likely because this woman was teaching people that there was a way for them to participate in the idolatrous worship and the sexual immorality that was inherently part of the city's involvement in the city's trade guilds and still be faithful to Jesus at the same time. Remember how we talked about these trade guilds, how they were a central and pervasive part of life in the city and that it would have been really costly for followers of Jesus, whether socially or economically, not to be a part of that, not to participate in that. And so this woman comes along and she says, you can have both. You don't, you don't need to pick and choose between faithfulness to Jesus and, or social and economic acceptance and security. You can have both of those things. And a lot of people are apparently raising their hands and saying, that sounds really good. I, I, I want to be on that team. That, that sounds much easier than the way that we're going right now. So I can worship Jesus and the patron God of my guild. That, that sounds great. I can give money to, the, to my guild, but also to, to the church. I can go to church and hear about sexual purity. But, but then at the end of the guild feast, if things get a little crazy, I, you know, I can indulge in a little sexual immorality. Nobody's perfect. It's just, you know, it's just the way things are. 
This would be like somebody in our day, someone who becomes very popular because they say, you know, you can still be a faithful Christian and also believe that there are other ways to God. Everyone's just on a different path. Just choose whichever one you want to be on. You, you can be a faithful Christian and, and also believe and practice whatever other forms of spirituality you want. You can just pray to whoever you want to pray to, whoever you think will answer you, whatever, whatever route you want to go down. Just, it's okay. Just merge them all together. It's fine. You can be a faithful Christian and pursue whatever kind of sexual relationship you want. You can do that with someone you're not married to. You can do that with someone of the same gender. You can do that with someone on the other end of a screen. God doesn't judge, and so, and so we shouldn't judge, and we should be tolerant and diverse, and, and Jesus loves you, and we love you, and, and so who are we to judge? And Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that. You allow it. You affirm it in your body, in your church. And Jesus says, but I do not. But I do not. See, Thyatira's strengths and weaknesses, they're the inverse of the church in Ephesus. One commentator writes it this way, the Ephesian church was weakening in its love, yet faithful to judge false teaching and immorality, while the people in the assembly at Thyatira were growing in their love, but were too tolerant of false teaching and immorality. Both extremes must be avoided in the church, for unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are both hateful to God. Jesus is opposed. He is opposed to their church. And he sees their love and their faithfulness. But he says your love towards some things is not love. And he doesn't just criticize this church for their tolerance of idolatry and immorality. He confronts them in it. Verse 21, the letter continues. He says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling and so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways, and I will strike her children, her, her spiritual followers. I will strike them dead. Apparently, by some means, Jesus uh, has already warned this woman Jezebel about her sin and has called her to repent and has given her a chance to repent, and, but she has refused to do so, and Jesus says so that he will, he will now then turn her bed of sin into a bed of sickness. And if those who are followers her, her spiritual children, those who are, who are allowing this and, and who are going along with her, if they do not repent as well, then they will face the same fate. Jesus is not messing around. He's not messing around. He, he is incredibly serious. I need you to hear me this morning. The Bible universally treats idolatry and sexual sin seriously. Always. Universally. There are some seven or eight viceless in the New Testament alone, and in every single one of them, sexual immorality and idolatry are mentioned. More than that, not, uh, more than, uh, that, not only is it mentioned, usually they're at the top of the list, and oftentimes they're mentioned in more than one way. You see, and when the Bible is talking about sexual immorality, it is talking about all forms of sexual activity that are outside the bounds of one man and one woman inside the context of marriage. To our world, that is a wildly narrow bounds. It is a wildly difficult thing. But Jesus says, there is one way on which I have designed this to work. If you've been here before, we've talked often about how we see sexuality as about us, as for us. 
But when we look at what the Bible has to say, is the Bible says that our sexuality is ultimately about God. It reveals something about him. It shows something about his nature and his character and what he's like. And so we're not free to pursue it in any way which we, seem, which we deem right. We're called to pursue it as he lays out for us because it's not ultimately about us. It is ultimately about him. So Jesus here, he takes their tolerance of idolatry and sexual immorality, he takes it very seriously. And if they do not repent from their sin, there will be real consequences. Not just in eternity, but then and there. Verse, 320, verse 23 goes on, Then all the churches will know that I am him who searches hearts and minds and will repay each according to their deeds. You see, false teachers were, like this Jezebel, were leading people back into sin in this church. But Jesus was going to make an example out of them so that all would know that he is the one who searches the heart and who sees the truth. No matter what someone else says the truth is, he is the one who knows the truth and sees the truth and speaks the truth and guards the truth. You see, some of us have this imaginary version of Jesus where he is just kind of like our life coach that is just kind of our biggest cheerleader and our best friend. He kind of is just in the background rooting us on and cheering us on and encouraging us in everything we do. And, and the Bible is does say that Jesus is our friend and our supporter and our encouragement, but do not miss this part of him as well. He is serious about sin, and he is serious about our worship of him and about his glory, and so should we be. See, the problem is that all too often, instead of seeking to conform our lives to Jesus's word and his will, we seek to try to change what it says to affirm our modern cultural sensibilities or because we just don't like it or because it will require us to change or to live differently. That's what Jezebel was doing and teaching others to do. And Jesus says, I will not tolerate it forever. And Jesus, he calls us to repentance. You see, I need you to hear this this morning. Christianity, it always begins with tolerance but it always leads to repentance. You see, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are or what you have done or where you come from or where you are at. Jesus invites all of us to come to him as we are, not to clean ourselves up, not to fix ourselves up, not to make ourselves right on our own, but to come to him as we are in our sin, in our mistakes, in our failures. But he doesn't leave us that way. See, Jesus calls all of us invariably without question to come to him so that he might change us. So that he might change us. You see, Jesus loves us enough to call us into redemption and transformation, not just to tolerate us where we are. You see, that is what real love looks like. You see, you and I, like the church in Thyatira, we bought into this lie that love equals unconditional affirmation. That to love someone means to, to, to unquestionably approve and affirm whatever they believe or do. You see, but that is not love. Jesus does not love us by letting us continue in sin. He loves us by calling us to repent of sin so that we might enjoy and find life in him. He calls us to a life in him. And that will require that we leave sin behind, that we turn from it, that we reject it, not that we embrace it or tolerate it. You see, in a life of ongoing repentance is the key to 
to the holding fast that Jesus calls this church to do at the end of verse 25. He says, to those of you who have not bought into the lies of Jezebel, who have not kind of bought into her deep, her deep truths, her, her esoteric teachings, the, the real truth under the truth that she says that she found, that, that you can just kind of do whatever you want and it's really okay. To those, to those who hold fast, Jesus says, he calls us to hold fast. And I think the, one of the inherent, most profound keys, if we want to hold fast to Jesus, is that we must be characterized by lives of ongoing repentance. You see, it's not just people who don't know Jesus that need to repent of sin. It is Christians every day. You see, from the day that you start following Jesus until the day that you kick the bucket or that he returns, there are going to be things in your life that are out of line with his word and his will that he is going to call you to reject and turn from and repent of. And the longer that I have followed Jesus, the more I have realized how deep-seated the sinfulness is in my own heart. I don't speak to you as someone who has all of their life put together, but one who recognizes the sinfulness of my own heart and is seeking each day to submit and to surrender to Jesus myself first. So that I might be able to call you into a life of repentance, not instead of me, but with me as well. You see, the more I follow Jesus, the more I realize how much I still need to repent of, and how wicked and sinful my heart still really is. But there's something else that I find as well to be true. The more I repent, you see, the more I embrace repentance, the more I embrace a turning from sin in my own heart and life, the more I enjoy Jesus and see him as the one who truly satisfies, the one who really gives life, the one who really actually fulfills and, and brings about the joy that I am looking for and the good news of the gospel and that all he did for me just gets better and better and better and it makes me hold on to him tighter to the truth about who he is and to all he's done and yes to the truth about who he is calling me to be you see it is an invitation to a life of blessing that a life spent just tolerating sin can never bring you see the default tendency of our hearts is to try to explain away the things that God's word says that we don't like it's just a cultural thing, and we don't really need to apply it anymore. It's just, you know, there was just this circumstance or this situation. Or it doesn't really mean that anymore or whatever it is. You see, we are susceptible to believing the lies of those who, have, who, who say they have really found what the Bible really means, who those who have found the deep secrets of the text that really all they do is enable us to continue in the sin that we want to continue in. But the truth is that that desire is the fruit of a wicked and unrepentant heart's and it will inevitably lead to our destruction. It's always where it leads. But for those who will humble themselves, those who will choose to, to repent of sin, to repent of their own sin or the tolerance of the sin they see in others who claim to follow Jesus, for those who hold fast to him and the truth of his word, Jesus offers two incredible promises. He offers two incredible promises to this church. In verse 26 and 27, he reads, To the one who is victorious, who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations 
And that one will rule with them and or will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like, like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. These verses are, are, are a quote or paraphrase from Psalm chapter 2, which is a, a messianic psalm which speaks about the Messiah's reign over the nations, his coming future reign over the nations. And here, Jesus promises that although following him and obeying him and living for him might be costly, both culturally or socially or economically for these believers, if we will stand with Jesus now, then in the end, we will also rule with him, will be vindicated by him. I listened to a sermon by Kevin Young this week as I prepared for, for the sermon, and his words on these verses just, they struck my heart. They read this way, he says, Now some of us are perhaps uncomfortable with that language. We think, well, I, I don't want to crush the nations to pieces like pottery, and I don't want to rule with an iron scepter, but could it be that our discomfort with this language of triumph is actually due to the fact that we are not particularly trampled? Might it be that the main reason that we are not interested in any final decisive vindication is because we have lived such neutered Christian lives that there is nothing countercultural about us and therefore we do not stick out in any way and therefore we are not opposed in any way and therefore we do not feel the need to be vindicated in any way. You see, it is so easy for us to just fall in line with our culture. And to allow the beliefs and the behaviors of the world around us to seep into our church and so and create a church in such a way that we look no different than the world around us. But that is not what Jesus calls us to. Instead, he calls us to be transformed by him and to call others as well to be transformed by him. You see, this doesn't mean that we impose our faith and belief on others. It doesn't mean that we force it down the throats of others, but it does mean that we propose our faith to others, that, that, we, that we proclaim it and that we offer it and that we invite people to see what is true and life-giving and good about it. And that means that, which includes that it is a call for repentance, a call to live countercultural lives, countercultural lives of worship, countercultural lives when it comes to our sexuality. See, it is tempting for us to leave out the essential message of the gospel, which is not just that we believe in Jesus, but as we studied in Mark chapter 1 in small groups the past few weeks, that we would repent and believe. See, you cannot get the truth of the gospel without a repentance of sin. Jesus calls us that we would turn from sin, that we might be able to embrace him. And if we abandon the good news about the gospel, if we abandon the call to repentance along with belief, then we abandon the good news of the gospel altogether. And Jesus says, it may be costly, but in the end, those who hold fast to me and my world will be vindicated, and they will rule with me in the end. But the second promise Jesus offers this young church is even more profound. In verse 28, Jesus says to them, I will also give you the morning star. Revelation 22, verse 16, near the end of the book, it reads this way. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you, this testimony for the churches, for I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright and morning star. You see, and so Jesus, 
He promises this young church to those who will choose to humble themselves and, and to repent of sin and to, and to obey him and to hold fast to him. He promises, his promise to them is, nothing, is none other than to give them his very self. You see, Jesus is saying that to the one who is victorious, who, who, who is willing to repent and to humble themselves, who, to hold fast to my word until the end, what they get is me in the end. So you may not get praise of the world, you might not get influence and prestige, you might not get the raise you are looking for, or the promotion you are looking for, you might not get the fair treatment or the fair trial that you are looking for, you might not get the relationship that you long for, or the, you might not get your kids or your parents, you might not get all kinds of things, but Jesus says, I tell you this for certain. If you will hold fast in the end. You will get me. You see, and the good news about the gospel is that if Jesus is all we have, it is enough. It's enough. You see, and when we take communion, what we're doing is reminding ourselves that Jesus is enough. That his body and his blood, which were broken and shed for us, that they were enough to cleanse us from our sin, but they are also enough to satisfy the longings of our hearts to return to a right relationship with God. You see, communion, it, it does not make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead, what it is a chance to do is a chance to remember the sufficiency of Jesus, to remember who he is and all that he has done, to, to remember that his body and his blood were broken and shed for you on your behalf and that his life and his death were enough, finished enough, to forgive and to restore and to cleanse and so in communion, we remember. We remember those truths so that in remembering who he is and all that he has done, we might be filled with a love for him and a gratitude for him and a passion for him that would overflow and motivate and empower lives lived of faithful obedience unto him. See, and so as we sing and as we worship and remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if he is the one that you worship as Savior and as Lord, then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion. The bread and the juice, they're in the back, and you just simply, during our time of worship, you go back and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice, and that's how you take communion here at River City. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But this morning, if that's not where you're at, if, if Jesus is not yet the one to whom you have surrendered your life, if you realize that instead you are, instead of submitting to his word and his will, you've just been trying to change it or, or to reject it altogether, then I would encourage you this morning to hold off on taking communion. I need you to hear this. You are welcome here. Wherever you are at in your life, in figuring out who Jesus is and thinking about what it might mean to surrender your life to him, wherever you are at in that process, I need you to hear, you are welcome here. This church is for you and this people is for you and you are welcome as a part of this community no matter where you are at. But instead of coming to the communion table this morning, I would encourage you, come to Jesus himself instead. Surrender to him, receive him, ask him to transform and renew your heart and your life. And so this morning, as we take communion, as we sing, I'd encourage you, talk with God. 
This morning, the invitation is that we might repent of sin, especially this morning, the emphasis in the passage has to do with our sexual sin. The reality is that we are all sexual sinners, every single one of us. We all choose to pursue sexuality outside of the bounds that God has for us in some way, shape, or form. The only one who pursued it perfectly and rightly is Jesus himself, and you and I, you are not him. And so the invitation this morning is that all of us might ask Jesus, Jesus, where might you need to correct me when it comes to the way that I think about sexuality, my own? Be honest with God. Ask him to empower you to turn from sin no matter what that might cost you. And I need you to hear that that might feel really costly. That might feel really costly to surrender to Jesus' role of sexuality in your life. It might feel like it, it means the world. But I need you to hear this. There is a life that is found in surrendering everything to Jesus that you can find nowhere else. And he offers and extends a hand to you of life and blessing and joy if you might surrender to him. If you might lay that down at his feet. He comes to you this morning not with guilt, not with shame, not trying to beat you over the head with, with your mistakes or the way that you've sinned in the past. He comes this morning offering you a hand of life. Take it from him. Ask him to speak to you this morning. Ask him to help you to choose to pursue a sexuality in the way that he has designed it. Ask him that you would ask him to help you see it as life and joy and freedom and blessing. Because that's not the way we want to see it. So call to, to repent of sin, but also this morning Jesus calls his church to repent of their tolerance of sin in their own lives, as well in the lives of others who would call themselves followers of Jesus. The bottom line is that as followers of Jesus, we cannot unquestionably affirm and support every belief and behavior. We cannot do it. And Jesus calls us to a faithful obedience unto him, told fast to what he has taught. Ask him to help you to do that. Ask him to help you to set your eyes on the promises as well that he makes. Ask him to help you see him as the bright and morning star, the one who satisfies fully, the one who vindicates completely, and the one who you can hope and trust in fully so that in any and every situation you might be able to, empowered to live lives of faithful obedience unto him. For your good, and for his great glory in all the world. Let us pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we are humbled by your word. God, a word written 2,000 years ago to a church far off and distant from where we are at. Oh, but it's truth. Speak to us today. God, we confess to you that we are tempted to care far more about what our world and our culture says is right and true and good. We are tempted to care far more about our own desire for pleasure or comfort or social acceptability. We are, we are tempted to care far more about that stuff than we are to care about what you say and what you long for and, and about your good and your glory. God, we, can, we come to you this morning and we confess that that is the mode of our hearts, the default mode of our hearts. Jesus, change us. Shape us, renew us, transform us, King Jesus, so that we might be a counter-cultural kingdom people 
who God, who not only show the life that you offer, but who offer it freely to others as we propose our faith to others, not imposing it, not forcing it on anyone, God, but offering it to them, including within it the call to repentance and faith in you. God, the good news of the gospel gives life and freedom and joy. Help us to see it that way, to live in response to it that way, and to offer it to others in that way. Thanks, Jesus, that you are full of grace, full of mercy, full of forgiveness for us and our sin, that you don't come to us just motivated, motivating us with guilt and shame and duty and obligation, but you come offering life to us. Help us see your offer of life and surrender to you, King Jesus. We cannot do it on our own. We need you. For our good, for your great glory, we pray you would do it. Amen.